Well, hello and welcome. My name is Hilary McNevin. I'm the founder of Turnip Media. And on behalf of Turnip and with the support of Worksmith, I'd like to welcome you to the next episode of Edible Futures. And I'm thrilled to say that this episode is produced in partnership with Mount Zero Olives. I'm thrilled to introduce our guest for this episode, Tom Serafian, chef, hummus maker, wholesaler, retailer, creator of TUM. Welcome. Thanks, Hilary. And I should also say the founder of Serafian Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's good to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. Thanks so much for being here. Now, tell us about Serafian Melbourne. So, I started um, about five months ago. I think it was in August last year. Um, and it's off to a pretty good start. Yeah. It is, isn't it? It's kind of everywhere. And yeah. I want to say congratulations <laughs> because for you and also say, so August 2021 is yeah. when you yep. um, started um, Serafian Melbourne. Yes. Now, you started with one product. Yes, just started with hummus. Yeah. Okay. Why hummus? Tell us a bit about your background to, that led you to yeah, sure. putting jars of hummus on the shelf. Um, I mean, it's, it's something I started making uh, probably about four years ago um, after I left cooking at Rumi in East Brunswick. Mm-hmm. I, I went uh, on a research trip to the Middle East and visited um, Lebanon and ate some pretty incredible hummus there and was pretty inspired and blown away to put it and make it a bit of a star on the menu when we opened Saracen. Yes. Uh, At Rumi, I never cooked hummus. It was always a bit more left field um, Lebanese and Arabic dishes, nothing sort of like too, you know, obvious, I guess. Yeah, Um, okay. And we just say Rumi is in Brunswick in Melbourne and then Bar Saracen was open in the city in Melbourne. And what was the time period you were there? Um, It would have been 2018 to 2020-ish. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) when the world fell apart. 2020-ish dot 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 is almost the way that we can refer to that. That yeah. time, spa- that time and space since then, I think. Yeah, totally. um, it's interesting because I, I, you are a, a well-trained chef. You're very accomplished. You've tra- worked overseas. Yeah. Would you say though that Bar Saracen is where you put your sort of stamp on your own cooking, yeah, and then absolutely. it gave you the impetus and also the platform upon which to to yep. start your own company? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, I, w- I was, you know, cooking roomies. Food, you know, obviously a very well established mm-hmm. restaurant that's been there for you know about fifteen years now. Um, but I was starting to put my own touches on the menu towards the end of you know the three years that I cooked there. And the team they would have been very supportive of that. We love Joseph. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was given a lot of uh, creative freedom, which was which was awesome. That's great. Um, but yeah, at Saracen, it was it was completely my menu. Um, and yeah, things like uh, you know hummus. I was like, okay, I want to do this, but yeah. I want to do it you know, the best way that I possibly can. Mm-hmm. And with something such such humble ingredients, you know, like there's only five or six things that are inside, you know, in most hummus recipes anyway. Yes. Um, so I became slightly obsessed with how I could make it as good as the stuff that I'd had overseas. Yes. Um, if not better, and how I could just produce, you know, the best, the best hummus that I possibly could. And somewhere along those lines, um, you know, I started getting – some pretty awesome feedback on the hummus and it became a bit of a signature dish. Um, it never left the menu, basically. There were a lot of different variations of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the most popular and favourite was the spanner crab and king prawn yes. sauce on top, which yes. is a, um, 
you know, a take on a classic uh, lamb on top of hummus dish yep. called hummus awama. Yes. Um, which is lamb cooked in, in lamb fat with lots of onions and oh, spices and things. And yeah. yeah, it's pretty awesome. But yeah. I did that with seafood because, you know, we've got all these beautiful crabs and prawns in abundance here. So mm-hmm. um, th- those kind of twists and things were, were where I was going with my food at Saracen. Um, and it would have opened eyes. I, I think there's a general perception out there about something as simple you know, in a quote marks, I put yeah. uh, as simple as hummus, um, that it's just a dip. Or um, there would yep. have been an audience out there going, hang on a minute, this tastes yeah. the, the flavour and the texture of the hummus you make. And then putting beautiful Australian seafood. Yeah. Must have taken, you must have opened the eyes and the palates to an, a, quite a diverse and discerning audience, I'm thinking. I think so, because most people here are used to eating hummus straight out of the fridge in, in you know, little plastic containers with some crackers or whatever and yeah. um, they don't realise that it's it's actually not – I wouldn't say that's a wrong way to eat hummus but it's not how it's usually eaten in that part of the world. Yes. You know, hummus is um, – it's, it's a way of life over there. Like it's it's substance, it's everything. It's, um, you know, people eat hummus at least once a day in most areas of the Middle East. Like yep. it's a real big thing. Um and it's never out of the fridge with, with crackers, you know, it's, it's quite different. Can you tell us, can we go back a bit to actually how you grew up and, and the influences in your childhood cooking? Because yep. I think, that well, tell us about your background. I know you're a Melbourne boy and you, well, you yeah. grew up in Melbourne, but um, there was yeah, a lot of different flavours going on on your kitchen table, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my father's a chef and, and grandfather. Um, it kind of feels like everyone in my family is a, a chef of sorts, but, um, you know, we grew up with pretty awesome food. Uh, especially my grandparents who are Armenian. Okay. Um, and, and they were born and raised in Egypt. My father was born in Egypt as well. Um, so whenever we would go to their homes, we would eat all pretty interesting, exotic things that we wouldn't usually eat at home. Would hummus be part of that? Hummus was always there. Yep. Um, okay. And, and my grandfather would make awesome hummus, but it was always fresh, um, uh, pretty pretty garlicky as well. I think that's maybe where my love for garlic started. <laughs> I remember, you know. No, I pretty, just love, get, how yeah. can you not have a love of garlic? Yeah. Irrational love of garlic. That's yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Like that real, you know, take your breath away sort of garlic hit. Um, <laughs> And yeah, it was like, uh, it was kind of like special occasion food, you know, yeah. I think that's why it was so, um, luring to me. Like, like I think, you know, I know a lot of, um, people that sort of grow up eating that food every day. Um, it's not that exciting to them, but when you eat it just every now and then it's, it's yeah. like, you know, you crave it basically. Yeah. So, so you grew up with it being this magical thing on a table that you, yeah. when you were seeing your grandparents. And yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. but tell us then the journey of becoming a chef. Yep. Chickpeas and good olives and beautiful yeah. Middle East and Mediterranean ingredients seem to follow you, and you pursued them as well. Could you just tell yeah. us about your career? Yeah, sure. Um, I think uh, I was pretty lucky in that um, you know I, I had an apprenticeship at the Stokehouse, um, which opened a lot of doors. That was in Saint, that's in, in St. St. Kilda, Kilda. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that was that was a great place to work. I kind of worked my way around the kitchen over three or four years and. Um, picked up lots of different skills, whether they're in pastry or in pasta or, um, you know, cooking on the grill. Um, but at the same time, it's it's quite overwhelming in a sort of um, confusing way, I guess, as a, as a young chef in Melbourne that um, there's so many doors you could go through. There's, like you could cook yep. Thai food, you could cook Italian, French, like um, – you know, it's overwhelming. There's almost too many choices here. That's really interesting. And even despite your 
um, upbringing and having those beautiful um, flavors at the at the table, you know, yeah. in a celebratory sense, you didn't naturally, and maybe I'm being I'm generalizing here, didn't naturally tend towards those flavors. You actually saw, yeah. hang on, if you if you will, a, a smorgasbord of different cultures that I could yeah, jump into totally. here in Australia. Absolutely, um, and yeah, it's, it's exciting, but at the same time, it's like I don't know which way to go, which direction. Yeah, you know, there's so many choices, so many amazing restaurants and incredible chefs. Um, but it was when I picked up a, a Greg Maloof book and mm. saw the kind of food that I was eating as a kid in this beautiful finesse style yes. that I, I sort of said, oh, wow, I didn't know that that you know, food that I'd eat as a kid at grandma and grandpa's place could be so beautiful and look so interesting. And, you know, especially working at like a hatted restaurant and that being sort of, you know, the focus and goal to sort of make everything look beautiful, yeah. um, you know, especially as a young chef, uh, when you're trying to sort of be the best and whatever. So, yes. you know, you kind of lured into that style. It's a bit of a light bulb for you, you went off? Like it was yeah. something you needed to go and follow? Absolutely. And, you know, I think Greg was kind of the only one who was doing anything like yep. that. Um, you know, whereas there was like, you know, 10 different cool, fancy Thai restaurants you could go to work yep. at, for example, yep. but there was just the one um, Arabic sort of restaurant that, to go through. And that through. was called Momo. That was Momo, yep. yeah. Um, so I got in touch with them and they were like, oh, you know, we're not really hiring, we come and do a trial anyway and see what happens. And anyway, one thing sort of led to another and I ended up getting a job there not that long after. Um, and yeah, that kind of changed everything. You know, I would, I would cook there and I was so inspired by everything I was learning and cooking there that I would then start cooking, you know, Middle Eastern foods, my family on my days off. Yes. Um, and gained quite a lot of confidence in cooking because I'd always cook for you know, everyone at home, yeah. um, my day off, I would, I would go to like a market and buy all these ingredients and just cook some cool dish out of a cookbook um, and spend all yeah. day doing it. But mm-hmm. it was when I started cooking, um, you know, Maloose recipes that I felt like, I don't know, it, it, it kind of came naturally to me a little bit. Yes, yeah. And I could see like my parents, my brother sort of saying, this is like really good. Whereas some of the other stuff was a bit experimental. <laughs> and yep. they were like, oh, yep. yeah. No, you'd sort you of know. found, you'd found your niche. You'd found I your rhythm. So. I think so. Yeah. yeah. It felt but good. Yeah. You went to London, didn't you? Not long after. I yeah. Well, well, Greg, Greg moved across to London. Yeah. Um, and I, I went with him. Uh, there was an opportunity to cook there mm-hmm. um, at a restaurant called Petersham Nurseries. And it was a beautiful, beautiful restaurant um, set in a, beautiful old nursery, lots of antique um, furniture. It was all outdoor settings, um, beautiful garden and, mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah, just just quite stunning. Um, that was an incredible yeah. opportunity there and uh, the produce that he was cooking with there um, was things that I'd never really seen before. Um, you know, the, the fruit and vegetables um, especially were just uh, – yeah, just just really something else. And what did um, was he doing that same Arabic? Yeah, influenced yeah. menu there with these different ingredients. So Pretty it's much, like yeah. your mind's kind of exploding at this point. I'm thinking, yeah. you know, <laughs> like this is like Christmas every day. Yeah, it really was actually. Like there was a, there was a garden on site that we'd we'd pick fresh things just before service from. Um, there was ingredients being flown in from from you know places like France and Italy yeah, on a daily basis. Um, you know, just like the tomatoes and, uh, you know, everything was just was just blowing me away. Um, and I think, you know, here we don't we don't know that there's things like that, that they exist. Um, you know, we, we kind of closed off to produce like that. Do you mean in terms of older heirloom style, European style? Yeah. Fruit and veg that 
yeah. you know, generations of farmers and things like that. We have that yeah, a little totally. bit. We're actually talking to someone yeah. in this series, so, you know, oh, yeah. from a few different farmers from generational farmers in Australia. But I, yeah. I know what you mean. There's a completely different culture. Yeah, flavor, I think so. Yeah. The DOC. I mean, the, now it's different. Like in the last five or ten years, we've, we've been pretty lucky to see some pretty incredible farming happening, even, yeah. even here in Melbourne, like the ingredients that like when I was cooking at, at Rumi in Saracen that I'd be able to get my hands on, um, you know, local farms like Days Walk and Somerset yeah. and, and yeah, those kinds beautiful. of people. Um, but back then you hadn't seen, as no, a chef, you hadn't seen it. Ten years ago, I, I don't think yeah, there was any no, of that no, really I agree. The culture it was, it was not really what it is now. Yeah, yeah. you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's, it's a whole new level now. Um, and, yeah, all the heirloom varieties and things like that and just different varieties of things. Yeah, you sure. Know? Like, if, but even now if you go to like the supermarket or grocery store, there's, there's at least five to ten different types of tomatoes. I don't think that it used to be like that. No, I agree with you. And this yeah. is ten years ago you're talking, isn't it? Yeah. So definitely there wasn't a culture around that. And I think that's an exciting part of what's happening with food yeah. here in Australia. Yeah, but totally. you over there ten years ago, you didn't stay – or how long did you stay at Petersham? Because you cooked at some other interesting places too yeah. while you were there. Yeah, so I did the whole you know two-year visa. Yeah. Um, and I was lucky to move around um, three times. So after Petersham – um, I scored a job at St. John, which was awesome. Um, Can I ask for a minute? Now, St. John is not – you'd found this kind of niche. You'd found your zone yeah. in Middle Eastern and those beautiful <laughs> flavours. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't – that's not St. John. No, but, not but at all. tell it's us the why you went there. But it's well, magnificent. So. I finished up – you know, Greg, Greg had left Petersham and I was looking for somewhere else um, – to continue cooking that style of food, but I couldn't. I couldn't find anywhere in London mm. that that really appealed to me. Yeah. Um. So I had a friend working at St John, and I went and ate there. And I, I'd never. I, I'd, I'd heard about St John through like Bourdain, um, you know, episodes and things like that, and, yep. and always sort of knew about it, but I never knew too much about it. Um. But the meal there just absolutely floored me. I'd, mm. I'd never had anything like it before. I have before. been lucky enough to eat there too. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty amazing, right? <laughs> I still smile about it. It was years ago, but yes. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's so different to anything else, uh, especially anything else I'd ever come across. Um, In terms of its simplicity? or Simplicity and I think boldness was yeah. the biggest thing for me. I'd never seen anything so bold on a plate before you know i never can you give us an example of what that boldness may have been yeah i think it's it comes with the confidence of um what they do um which is a huge uh it was a huge learning curve for me um firstly eating there seeing things but then um working there and um coming from this sort of slightly i guess fine dining background um then plating a dish and, and being like is that does it need anything else? And they're like, no, that's it. Just send it. It's fine. Yes. And you're like, no, no garnish. Don't, don't worry about, you know, tidying up the plate. Just let it naturally sit yes. where it falls. Yeah. Um, was really like, it, it took me a while to really like. There's a discipline to that, isn't there? There to really the, is. Yeah, to the simplicity yeah. of a crab on a plate yeah. or three or four langoustines. Exactly. That's yeah, it. you're kind of reading my mind then when you said, can you describe it? Like something like the langoustines with the mayonnaise yeah. and crab next to it is yep. like, but they're all lined up. Nicely, so they're mm. facing the same direction. So there's this little, you know, finesse to it, um, but it's really just letting the ingredients shine and per- perfect flavor combinations. You know, like just one or two things next to each other on a mm. plate that just work so perfectly together, and just let them be perfect. Don't don't add anything else to it. Don't hide or mask their flavors yeah. or anything. And that's like the opposite almost to some. Middle Eastern or Arabic food styles because mm-hmm. there's a lot of flavors going on. Yes. You know, think, think like, um, you know, dishes that are layered with 
you know, different types of meats and, um, you know, there's smoke and there's, there's spice and there's herbs and, and chili and garlic yeah. and all these like, you know, a lot heavy on the acidity. And then you've got something like, um, you know, bone marrow on toast, you know, yep. <laughs> like it's just two or three things on a plate. Um, so what I was sort of taking from that was like finding some kind of balance between the two, you yes. know, in my own style. I was like, well, this is beautiful, but, you know, if I was to cook this in, in my way, I would, I would put a little bit of this and a little bit of that next to it and just amp it up a little bit, but mm -hmm. without losing the essence of what it is as well. So well, this is, and I don't mean to interrupt, but it's a lovely almost a segue into when you said just making the ingredients shine, yeah. you know, and, and stand out. Your hummus is only a few ingredients yeah. and those ingredients have to shine and your new product, yeah. product placement, product placement, <laughs> here we go, that it, tum, which is like a garlic sauce, yes. is also very simple in its makeup. Um, yep. Did you feel that – so was that part of an – if I may say an influence from St. John, an influence yeah. from Greg Maloof. Yeah. have got this – Fergus Henderson, Greg Maloof, these amazing chefs. Yeah. Basically almost – and you're finding your middle ground from these two great storytellers and creative chefs. Would that yeah. be fair to say? Absolutely. Um, but you know what? I think it was actually the third restaurant I worked at in London, Morrow, um, <sighs> which was just around the corner from St. John and I ended up working there on my days off. Um, and then ended up getting a job there for the last six months or so uh, in London. And um, I learned there how to really amp up flavours, which was um, – Interesting. Yeah. How do you amp up flavour? Well, it was the first time I'd cooked over charcoal. Yeah. Uh, there was a beautiful charcoal barbecue and this awesome um, wood-fired oven. Yep. And, you know, I, get, I got to cook on both those sections a bit. And, yeah, like like learning those things but then – um, adding smoke, adding adding charcoal, especially mm. to those flavors. Like if you marinate a piece of fish or chicken or lamb, and then you cook it in a pan or an oven, mm -hmm. or you know, like a gas barbecue, it's going to be good. But if you cook it over charcoal, it's fantastic. And did they have different types of wood at different times of the year, or did you learn it? Did you get that into it about what sort of woods from that part of the world you were not, cooking? Not with? so much different type. Like like there was the wood fired oven and yep. then there was a charcoal barbecue so yep. that was a bit different learning how to cook with both because they're quite different of course um but yeah it was it was more like the just the the flavors you know how to anthem like the, everything there was like cranked up to 11 you know whereas at st john it was like very like you know this sort of like even like you can taste everything all at once sort mm -hmm. of things and then at mario was like you'd eat something and it was like um you know, we have like a really excellent wine and you've, you've got yeah. flavours here and there and all over the place. And it takes it? you somewhere else. Exactly. It's almost ethereal yeah. And, yeah. And, and explosive. It's and quite exciting sort of things. Yes. Yeah. So I think it was actually, you know, back to your question, it was all all three of those sort of influences. Um, and when I was there, all I was doing was working. So I was like, you know, obsessed with everything I was doing and, and you know, sort of studying and writing everything down and coming up with ideas and all that sort of thing. So, so. tomorrow with Sam and Sam Clark was almost like the finishing school. From, yeah, from, I think so. I say, from yeah. the, these other influences. And yeah, that's a good way to put on. And I feel extremely lucky to have those three because they all sort of intertwined and, and, you know, yeah, pretty awesome experience. Oh, yeah. look, I, it's fascinating and it's given you such an appreciation for, if we may go now, to Serafian Melbourne because yeah. as a chef, are, are you still chefing at the moment? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I still consider myself a chef. Um, yeah. I'm still cooking every day. Um, yeah. You know, I'm doing just as many hours, if not more, than I was when I was in the restaurant. Um, so you're not actually doing yeah. service right now though? You're it kind focusing. of feels like it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I started off with four stockers. Now there's about 
30 and heaps yeah. more on the waiting list that I'm just sort of incorporating as I can. Yes. Um, you know, the, the main focus is to never lose the quality by trying to pull off too much. So I'm just week by week adding like a stockist or two, mm-hmm. um, you know, slightly, slowly expanding um, and adding more products as I go. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, sometimes it feels like, you know, because you've got like a lot of orders on, <laughs> almost yeah. like yep. in, in a yep. service um, part of the night and you're like racing to get them all finished by a certain time so you can get on the road and deliver them. Um, and yeah, I'm doing pretty much everything like from, you know, taking the orders and um, all, the, all the socials and, uh, you know, making everything. I've got a team who comes and helps me make and pack as well. Yeah. It's, it's getting pretty busy. Um, and then getting on the road and delivering it. So it's like, yeah, it's quite different to being in a restaurant, but you still get the the adrenaline and, um, you know, still quite a lot of pressure to get everything made to that level and in that time. Well, that's the thing. You're making basically restaurant quality hummus for people to eat at home. Yeah. And I'm just – one thing that's really important to us here at Edible Futures is about well, sustainability in the sense of economic sustainability and, you know, um, yep. and ethical and, you know, um, sustainability in that how, making – looking after the land, looking after your business – were these important aspects of setting up um, Serafi in Melbourne? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I think you know sustainability to me means like a lot of lot of different things, especially in, in what I do. Um, but ultimately, it's uh, it's um, you know long longevity um, and doing things the right way, basically um, treating people the right way. Yes. You know. Um, and, and the environment using, you know, ethically sourced ingredients and things like that um, without being too wasteful um, to produce something that, that is sustainable. Can you go back to the nights you started to think, as a chef, I want to make hummus to sell in a shop? Because I'm yeah. imagining there'll be people out there, who chefs hopefully listening to this, who are, how do I diversify my business? Yeah. The industry is certainly changing after COVID. We know that. And we don't know what it will look like in five years' time. Sure. Um, what... What were the steps you took to set up what, what you're doing now? The first thing, I, I didn't want to add anything else to it to um, extend the shelf life. So it's um, it's exactly the way I was making it in the restaurant. There's no okay. preservatives, no additives. I, I make it fresh um, twice or if not more a week um, before I yeah. deliver once or twice a week. Um, and how many, what are the ingredients in your hum- hummus? Um, so I, I use chickpeas from Western Australia, from yeah. Ord River. They're the best chickpeas that I can find. Um, then I use incredible... Uh, Abiquina olive oil from Mount Zero, yeah, which is just that. the most delicious olive oil. Um, and it's quite light and balanced. It's not too uh, peppery or, or fruit forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, all, all these things are really considered. Um, the tahini I use is actually from Lebanon. Um, and the reason I use you know tahini from the other side of the world is, is it's just the best tahini I could taste yep. anywhere. Um, and is that an issue at all? I, I, I don't know. And, you know, like I, I was inspired by Lebanon to make hummus. Yeah. So I kind of like feel like I'm giving a bit of love back yep. to them as well, which is kind of nice. I like that. Um, the lemons I, I use, um, I got in touch with this awesome farm in Mildura through the Melbourne Farmer's Market, um, Kingfisher Citrus, and they have these incredibly delicious yep. lemons. Yep. Um, garlic I'm using is from uh, Keylor. It's grown at Days Walk Farm. Um, yep, through this awesome organisation called Farmer Incubator. And I pretty much bought their whole crop, um, which is like 120 kilos of garlic, which seemed insane. Um, but I've, I think they've only got like 10 kilos left for That's me. So great. I'm going to start using day's walk garlic and then I'll just keep rotating um, local organic or organic um, garlic yep. um, farms until the organic garlic season's all 
all over, um, and then there's no more tongue till next season. You know. Oh right, it yeah. has to be a seasonal product, doesn't it? Does, it does. Yeah, I'm, I'm never going to start using, um, you know, ingredients like, like fresh ingredients from from anywhere else. No. Um, so yeah, and, and and the salt I use is from Mount Zero as well. The Pink Lake salt. It's um, beautiful, beautiful salt. Yeah, it's so tasty, and it, it makes everything else taste really good. So it yeah, it's a bit of a secret ingredient, I guess. <laughs> um, and yeah, that, that's pretty much it. There's a little bit of smoked paprika, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that, that's essentially all the ingredients. Yeah. And tell me, Tom, when you're seeking out the right ingredients to make these beautiful products, um, say for the w- w- where do you start looking? Say, for example, for the lemons and the olive oil. Yeah. So. Melbourne Farmers Market put me in touch with Kingfisher Citrus. Um, you know, sometimes it's something like that. Like I'll speak to somebody else and say, you know, who do you know who grows beautiful um, lemons or garlic? And then sort of one thing leads to another and you sort of, you know, find out about these people through word of mouth, I guess. But it's when you find them and start talking to them, um, it becomes pretty evident pretty quickly whether they're the right person to go down. And I've been really lucky to meet people like, um, you know, Richard from Mount Zero. And I, I was hearing him speak about, um, you know, Mount Zero as a company and everything that they do and, you know, the beautiful olive oils that they produce as well. Um, uh, they're almost like a, as obsessed with what they grow and produce as what I am, with what I cook and produce. Um, yes. And that's how I know they're the right kind of people. You know, when I was talking to um, Lin- Linton from – uh, Kingfisher Citrus and realizing he's like obsessed, almost like a um, lemon scientist, you know, the oh, way wow. he was describing, uh, you know, how they grow and everything to me. Um, I was like, okay, this is the right guy. You know, this yeah. is my lemon guy. Um, You're and looking for that special kind of crazy? Exactly. Oh, yeah. That that, that that beautiful obsession with what they do with their craft. Yes. Um, and they're also really, really lovely people to deal with. You know, I had a, um, you know, theme when I first started, I was like, I'm only going to deal with awesome people. You know, yeah. I don't want, I don't have time to, to deal with anybody else with what I do. So, yeah, I was pretty lucky to come across um, all these amazing farmers and producers. And I have talked to you about this before. You handpick the chickpeas. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Tell yeah. us a bit about that because <laughs> yeah. it's very, it sounds very labour intensive. Yeah, it is. But um, I don't know. I think uh, it's important for me to, to make sure every single thing that goes into the jar is perfect. So, right. yeah, I, I wash the chickpeas um quite thoroughly I soak them and then I change the water the next day and then soak them again um uh one of the reasons I do that is I cook it in a pressure cooker so you can't really skim off everything okay um so that that gets rid of all the impurities and things like that like when you're cooking a really beautiful stock yeah um but yeah I pick through every single one and um sometimes even though I use like the most premium quality chickpeas sometimes there's one or two sort of bad or old ones in in the bags um so yeah it takes you know an extra couple of hours to, to pick through and sort them all and make sure every single one's perfect but um I, you know I, I, I've got the idea that if there's even one bad chickpea in the batch that it's not going to be you wouldn't awesome. sleep at night no. I know you well enough to know that would be you'd be bothered worried about that one chickpea did exactly I miss it? yeah and then afterwards with that after they're cooked, I pick off um, the skins as well. That's how I get it really, really smooth. You do that, or you have teams a team to help you though. No, I've got a bit well? of a technique where I like um, I cook them and then I um, sort of agitate them, and a lot of the skins rise to the surface, and I can skim them off. That's a good idea. And then the rest of them, I sort of pick through. Go yeah. through. And if we can, I'd like to talk about the tum as well. Yeah. In this context, you hand peel the garlic cloves. Yes. Yeah. Like that, how long? And tell a little bit. Is there a trick to that one? Good company and good music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the and trick. Can you have yeah. a cold beer if it's at the end of the day? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah wow, that, that takes a while. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Tom, how is this financially viable? Because, in terms of 
you have to then it's not the cheapest hummus in the world but it's not crazy yeah. expensive either and yeah. there'd be people who often say oh it's just not worth it and yeah it's very the, much a labor of love put it yeah. that way <laughs> yeah. can it be can how how do you scale up do you is scaling up something you even think about um not really I, like yeah i think it's it's been five ish months since i launched um and like, like I said, there's still a lot of stockists on a waiting list that I'm sort of slowly incorporating at my own pace when, yeah. when I feel comfortable. Um, I can never see myself sort of scaling up too much because yeah. it's a very hands-on process and yeah. I kind of – I have to be there to do it. Yeah. Um, so who knows? We'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, you know, I think, I think equipment plays a big part in all of this. Like mm-hmm. we're, we're piping the hummus into jars, you know, every single one. Hand piping. Um, hand piping. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking Wonderful. towards like equipment to to sort of speed up that process, you know, yeah. like, a, like a dispenser and things mm. like that. Um, I think that might be the key to upscaling somewhat, but yeah. I can never see it getting too big. Yeah. You always went into this wanting to create a niche product. Was that, yeah. was that the intention? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, yeah, I, I love that, you know, in Melbourne you can you can go to like a bakery like, like Falco or, or – mm-hmm. um, Baker Blue or the Welcome or any of these sort of grocery stores and delis and awesome places and and pick up you know something that's handmade just around the corner, um, you know by chefs with, with nothing added to it to preserve it. It's mm-hmm. it's all natural ingredients. Yeah. Is there another city in the world you could imagine? I know you're from Melbourne. It's a hard question to answer, really. But could you yeah. see this happening in other cities of the world that just want? I know that chef. It's from down the road. I'm you know, and it's Australian produce. Yeah. I'm Melbourne sure. loves this kind of stuff. I think so. I think it's a good time for these kinds of things. Everything that we've all been through, I think people are starting to even more than ever um, understand what supporting local means. Yeah. And um, you know, also enjoying the benefits of it. Yeah. Yeah. And keeping the um. Tell us actually if we can go to the tum for tum, a minute as yeah, well. Sure. Um, what are the ingredients in that? So tum is uh is made. It's a Lebanese garlic sauce. Um, and it's made. It's made with garlic from um from uh sorry Kilo from Days Walk Farm which is um it's got five different varieties of garlic in there mm-hmm. um and it's some of the most incredible garlic I've ever seen it, it's really stunning wow yeah what some of the varieties of garlic there's one called Prinator there's one called Monaro Purple which is pretty yeah. cool like even just peeling them is like a real you know even though it takes ages it's, it's a real like a joy because they're all different colors and things oh, and wow. it's all pretty cool um Italian purple I think there's a Kilo pink um there's probably one that I'm forgetting there um but yeah, I was like looking at it like, do we do a batch with one type of garlic and then the next type? I was like, yeah. let's just mix them all together and see what happens. And we tried yeah. it and it tasted really good. Because I was going yeah. to say, do you, do you have to use them to keep a consistency in the jar? Do you yeah. have to use them all the time now for this season? Exactly. And then next yeah. season you see, yeah, it's more I consistent love that. that. Yeah, but it will change. It will yeah. change because the garlic will change. Um, but I guess it's my job to make it sort of always taste, you know, within 10% of itself like it like it'll always be 90 percent consistent sort of thing yes yeah if not 100 i don't know we'll see how it goes but and then yeah there's fresh lemon juice um mount zero's pink lake salt um and i'm using a really beautiful uh neutral oil um from riverina um mm-hmm. which is a non-gmo canola oil um which wow. is all grown and produced in australia okay um and it's the best best canola oil i could get my hands on um yeah, so it's all – and it's 100% Australian ingredients, which I'm pretty proud of as well. Congratulations. Yeah. And no additives, no preservatives in the tomb as well. Um, and it lasts for over a month. So, you know, most so people eat no it over the week. It's vegan by the sounds of things. It's vegan. It's gluten-free, yeah. dairy-free. Everyone can enjoy it. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. And you did say with 
charcoal roasted chicken and yeah. hot chips. Yep. And our vegan friends can have it with the hot chips. Totally. Vegetarian friends. Oh, yeah. And barbecue but, vegetables is awesome oh, with it as well. Great with yeah. that. You can use it in like pretty much anywhere that you use garlic, just add a tablespoon where you use a clove of garlic. Um, Even in cooking? Absolutely. Yeah, Ooh, yeah. Okay. If you like You're doing on. like a, you know, um, stir fried uh, vegetables or something like that, yep. you know, tossing in broccoli or something, just add a tablespoon of that at the end. Mm. Just like you'd add a, you know, crushed garlic and a squeeze of lemon. Yes. And it'll just take it to the next level. Yeah. It's this pretty is easy wonderful. Get into it. Is this as hard as harder than you thought it would be to set up Serafi in Melbourne? Yeah, it's it's a lot busier um, than I thought it was going to be. It kind of like hit the ground running. Um, and you I've had a profile though, and I, I actually wanted to ask you this: for any for a chef listening or wondering about it, is it about do do you need to go into this with a profile? Um, I'm going to say it helps. Of course, I, I guess it would, yeah. Um, but my, I guess my the bigger question for me is, as a chef now going into the young chefs up and coming, is this something yep. they need to think about if they want to own a small restaurant yep. and maybe have some of their own items, jarred items, shelved items, sauces, things like that? The, the pandemic has certainly seen a lot of businesses yeah. create a retail and a wholesale arm to their business, you know, sure. of heat and eat meals and sauces. Is it something a chef should absolutely put in their business plan? Um, yeah, look, it, it's definitely a great idea, you know, to, yeah. to diversify um, your business plan, um, look at different ways that, you know, if you do go into lockdown, what can you do um, to keep yourself going? Ab- mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, profile, sure, would help. I think, you know, I never look at it like I've got a profile. I think um, I look at it like I've got support from the industry, and Beautiful. you know, it was it was something you know, uh, both both hummus and tum. I was making every single day at Saracen, and people you know, I explained to them when they're like, "Oh, what's this? What's that?" So people kind of knew about it, but I think it was um, when I launched. Uh, it was the love and support of the industry that that really made it mm-hmm. take off. You know, because the general public had never heard of me or. or my hummus or the tum, you know, okay, but it was everyone yeah. who sort of got behind it and supported it um, and supported me that they sort of got it to that level. So it's kind of born in Melbourne by me, but it, it's only, you know, functional because of the love and support of everyone in Melbourne and, and beyond. Oh, no, I love that. And I actually would love to say in terms of an edible future, I think to, to kind of wrap up this great talk we've had today, thank you so much. I, I'd love to ask you, in terms of an edible future, in terms of the industry, what connection, community? I think yep. it's the intangible things often that you're, yes, you've got the beautiful, you know how to cook and you know how to make this and you're doing it from your heart. But would you say that one of the parts of a lasting, delicious future is respect, yes, connection? Absolutely. Time? Yeah. And, um, you know, to your question about profile, I think um, it's great to have and to build, but I think. Um, Possibly more important is just to yeah respect and and um, support others and then maybe when it's your turn they'll support you back and and that'll be helpful and just work in this beautiful cycle where everyone sort of loves and respects each other in the industries and, and helps each other and supports each other. Oh, I just got goosebumps <laughs> because and sorry because purely I think that's the thing about this industry, the hospitality industry at its core and at its best yeah. is it's the support is quite breathtaking and beautiful and I think that will take us certainly into an edible future. Absolutely. Tom Serafian, thank you so much for this chat. That's my pleasure. Thanks, Hilary. I'm just going to go and find some hot chips yeah. and dunk them into some tum. But I'm going to go make, make some tum. Yeah. Where can we find um, you? 
Um, yeah, look, best way is to just jump on my website, um, mm-hmm. seraphian.com.au. Um, there's recipes on there that I upload, um, ways to use the products. Um, when I launch new products, you'll find out about it there. Uh, all the stockists are there. Um, yeah, pretty much everything you need so to know. So Seraphian, S-A-R-A-F-I-A-N. That's it. .com.au. Yes. And we'll um we'll put that link up too when we post about this episode. Okay, great, thank but you. But on behalf of um, Turnip Media and Worksmith, thank you so much for being here. My absolute pleasure. Thanks, Hilary. Thank you. Thanks for listening to What's Next. If you enjoyed this and would like to find out more about what an edible future might look like, be sure to jump onto your favourite podcast platform and subscribe. <laughs>